This podcast series is based on the book Beyond Reasonable Greed, Why Sustainable Business is a Much Better Idea, by Wayne Visser and Clem Sunter, narrated by myself, Wayne Visser. Pride and Prejudice Physical growth is inherent in nature, but it doesn't continue ad infinitum. How, therefore, can it be feasible for the lion to multiply at an exponential rate, or to consume more food each month, or to keep getting bigger each year? And yet there is a widely held belief that economic growth is always good and should be continuously strived for. At the heart of this assumption is the idea that the economy is growing and so everyone is becoming progressively better off. Wealth that is generated supposedly trickles down through the society and the general standard of living is raised. As a result of this thinking, politicians, multilateral agencies and economists point to gross domestic product or GDP as the supreme measure of progress, welfare and quality of life for the nations of the world. It has been the basis on which investment opportunities are assessed, development aid is granted, loan funding is allocated, membership to various political and economic clubs is allowed, and general international status is accorded. This was never the intention. GDP is a simple and useful measure of economic activity. As GDP's creator, Simon Kuznets, said in 1934, and I quote, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income. End quote. The evidence is beginning to bear out Kuznets's perspicacity. We know, for instance, that over the past 50 years, while the global economy has steadily grown, income inequality has increased. That is, the rich have become richer at a faster rate than the poor have become richer. Indeed, some of the poor have become poorer in income per head. Furthermore, several indicators that adjust GDP for negative factors such as environmental degradation, poverty and health, such as the Index for Sustainable Economic Welfare, show that since the 1970s our quality of life has been declining despite the increase in GDP. The United Nations Human Development Index concludes that and I quote, the link between economic prosperity and human development is neither automatic nor obvious, end quote. In a similar vein, the World Economic Forum's Pilot Environmental Sustainability Index states that, and I quote, there is no clear relationship between a country's observed economic growth rate and its environmental sustainability, end quote. The United Nations Development Programme puts this qualitative difference in a nutshell when it identifies the following five damaging forms of growth. Jobless, which is growth that does not translate into jobs. Voiceless, which is growth that is not matched by the spread of democracy. Rootless, which is growth that snuffs out separate cultural identity. Futureless, which is growth that despoils the environment and ruthless, which is growth where most of the benefits are seized by the rich. It has declared that these types of growth are neither sustainable nor worth sustaining. This is a fundamental challenge to one of the biggest myths of our time, and one that pervades all business thinking, that growth is good and bigger is better. 
Now business has to face the fact that economic growth does not automatically benefit either society or the environment. And in an age of sustainability, where economic, social and environmental performance is linked, business will need to examine these relationships and impacts more carefully. When the lion pride grows, it may well be at the expense of other species and the environment. Fat cats Is the whole animal kingdom better off if the lions are getting fatter? Logic would dictate that, if anything, many species are probably worse off as the lion's appetite grows. And yet, many companies claim and believe that society and the environment will automatically be better off if they simply focus on maximizing value for their shareholders and increasing the packages of their directors. This conclusion is not supported by the dubious track record of business. In line companies, the benefits always seem to trickle upwards. Even employees do not seem to be guaranteed a fair share of the spoils, let alone society in general. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor, a typical factory worker received the paltry equivalent of 2.5% of the CEO's salary in 1960. By 1990, this proportion had slipped to just 1.2%. According to Business Week, U.S. CEOs earn 85 times more than their employees and CEO pay increased by 92% between 1990 and 1995 when it reached an average of $3.7 million per annum. During the same period, worker layoffs increased by 39%. How can a more equitable world be achieved when on the one hand 3 billion people live on less than $2 a day and on the other hand, the wealthy have $8 trillion invested in tax havens. To put this income gap into perspective, it would take one Haitian worker producing Disney clothes and dolls 166 years to earn as much as Disney president Michael Eisner earns in one day. Rather than spreading around the wealth for the common good, it seems to us that Adam Smith's invisible hand has a compulsive habit of feeding itself. Apart from the bizarre income gap between individuals that exists in the world today, there are too many examples to ignore of companies putting their own interests before the health and safety of their employees, before the welfare of local companies, and before the integrity of the environment. Nike is found to be using sweatshops with child labor. Shell is accused of human rights and environmental abuses in Nigeria. Coca-Cola is put under the spotlight at the 2000 Olympics for still using ozone-damaging refrigeration. McDonald's is found to be farming beef on clear-cut tropical rainforest land. Tobacco companies are accused of including additives in their cigarettes to make nicotine more addictive. Internal emails between Microsoft's top management disclosed in the court case indicate a desire to dominate the market at any cost. As most economists and business managers will tell you, if they're being honest rather than politically correct, the incentives in our current economic system make it almost impossible not to choose profits over people and the planet. Economists will talk about market failure, externalities and the tragedy of the commons, while managers know that it comes down to social and environmental considerations simply being too costly in the face of unrelenting pressure 
from shareholders and others to make better returns and to achieve higher growth rates. So it is no longer appropriate to assume, if it ever was before, that bigger and more profitable companies are necessarily better for society, communities or the environment. At the same time, it is simplistic just to brand companies as villains without taking into account the economic system that shapes their behavior. The relationship between how well a lion is eating and the health of its surroundings is neither simple nor direct. Is feline competition superior? This blind spot challenges businesses' assumptions about competition and its predatory nature. Companies tend to emphasize how creative they have to get and how keen their prices must be in a competitive environment. Yet the environment is seen as a resource to consume. Customers are seen as prey to hunt down and other companies in the industry are seen as competing predators to be killed, chased away or consumed. But are society and the environment better off as a result? And is the only model for corporate behavior this one? When thousands of staff are laid off, when knowledge is hoarded, or when an ecosystem is compromised in the name of competitiveness, as happens regularly, it is hard to argue that there's been a net sustainability benefit. And besides the social and environmental impacts, competitive behavior may be inefficient in the long run. Take specialization in agriculture. The world's range of crops and animals is narrowing due to dominant strains eliminating the weaker ones. More than 90% of the world's food is derived from fewer than 20 species of plant. If the climate changes, it may be disastrous for agriculture as the new habitat may not suit the strains that are left. One of the reasons that nature has been so resilient in the past has been its diversity and profusion which allow life to continue even when a step change occurs in the environment. Nature rarely does abhor a vacuum. In our case, man-made competition has led to fewer options and less flexibility than the natural state. The same can happen in normal commercial markets, when a big firm crowds out small firms. The result is that the consumer has a more limited choice. Ultimately, he or she may pay a higher price for the product if the company left decides to exploit its dominant position. To further our argument, consider this fictional illustration from ancient Greece. Suppose there was a trireme race in the sea off the Athenian coast to see which captain had the fastest warship. And suppose the speed of the trireme was related to how often the three rows of oarsmen were lashed with whips in each ship. Would you call the ship that crossed the line first the most successful competitor, or would you say that it had the worst conditions of service? Yet this is precisely how companies vie with each other now. They bring in management consultants to cut headcount and costs to the bone, making the remaining staff work longer and longer hours. As a result, they may achieve market leadership and win the race, but at what human cost in terms of those that stay and those that go? Extensive research by author Alfie Cohn also suggests that in a business context, Competitive behavior undermines individual and group performance. On the other hand, a new breed of companies is emerging that emphasizes cooperative relationships. 
Rosabeth Moss Cantor, former editor of Harvard Business Review and author of When Giants Learn to Dance, calls this becoming better pals with other organizations. The new breed pool their resources, create opportunity-based alliances, and link systems in a partnership. It is all a question of emphasis. Until now, businesses chosen to highlight and dramatize the predatory aspects of nature, whereas these are the exception rather than the rule. Nature's underlying characteristic is that of interdependent relationships and symbiotic cooperation. Even competition in nature only takes place within a broader context of cooperation. Likewise, In a sustainability era, company success will depend on being able to cultivate win-win relationships with all its stakeholders. Eventually, therefore, the competitive lion will lose its throne to the cooperative elephant. Living in a new landscape The lion is a creature of the wide open African plains. It thrives when it can roam freely over vast distances, hunting its prey without restriction. It will go wherever the food supply is plentiful, letting no animal stand in its way. It is as if the entire animal kingdom and nature itself exists to serve him, to satisfy his hunger. This is a fitting analogy for the way in which business has operated over the past few hundred years, roaming far and wide, ever hungry to conquer new markets, ever eager to track down fresh consumers, going where conditions best serve its appetite for profits, where taxes are most lenient, where skilled labor is cheapest, and where environmental standards are lowest. This is typical of what economist Kenneth Boulding described in 1964 as the cowboy economy. On the infinite plains of the cowboy economy, cowboy companies believe there are no restrictions on growth, resource consumption, or waste generation – They can live life recklessly in the pursuit of profits, gunning down whoever stands in their way. But the landscape is changing. There are very few frontiers left to conquer. The world has become a smaller, fuller place, one in which the cowboy lifestyle is no longer appropriate. Selfish lone rangers have never been much good for building healthy communities where people agree to live by certain norms to ensure peace and shared prosperity. Nor is the earth itself an infinite plain. The cowboys can no longer just move on to fairer pastures once they've exhausted the land where they are. After all, the pastures are under pressure from a growing population and from the activities of other cowboys who may have already degraded the soil and poisoned the water. Bolding talks about the need to replace the analogy of the cowboy economy with that of a spaceman economy. The latter pictures the planet as a closed system, which other than the sun has finite resource inputs and a limited sink capacity to absorb our wastes. It is an economy where material conservation, recycling and waste minimizations are paramount, since there is no away. Bearing this out, the carbon dioxide concentration in the Earth's atmosphere is at its highest level in 160,000 years, having risen from 280 to 350 parts per million between 1850 and the early 1990s. That's one of the less quoted statistics about the Industrial Revolution. Svante Arrhenius 
was the first person to spot the link between this statistic and global warming in 1890, and we're still arguing over it. Another economist, Gareth Harding, elaborated on Boulding's spaceship economy idea by introducing the notion of the tragedy of the commons. Harding demonstrated that in any open access resource system, the resource will be systematically depleted simply by each user acting rationally in his or her own self-interest. Yet this is exactly what our modern economic and business systems operating in lion mode, are set up to do. Companies have no qualms in pursuing their own selfish interests, growth, profits, shareholder value, because they hope that somehow Adam Smith's invisible hand will miraculously take care of the common good. However, as we will show in subsequent chapters, the common good is not being served by today's predatory business model. Closer to the truth may be Hardin's melodramatic conclusion that, and I quote, freedom of the commons brings ruin to all, and ruin is the destination to which all men rush. <laughs>